Thank you for listening to Comics for Fun and Profit. This is Drew with a special episode of my other podcast that I co-host regularly. And uh, it's Weekly Comic Spotlight over at John Mayo's comic book page. And uh, for those of you who haven't heard it, I wanted to give you a chance to listen to it. It's a standard review show of uh, a Marvel, a DC, and an independent comic. Uh, each week. So uh, check this out. And if you like it, go over there and subscribe or check out uh, those those episodes. They're a lot of fun. So thanks again for listening. Um, here you go. This is Weekly Comics Spotlight number 522 for comics originally released on August 9th, 2017. It is also episode 1321 of the Comic Book Page podcast and will mark the completion of a full decade of weekly comic reviews. Dun, 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 dun. So we'll uh, we'll have another episode focusing on that. So with that, let's get going with our first pick, which is from DC Comics. It's Justice League of America number 12. Have you been reading this title? Nope. No? Okay. I think I may have mentioned this. I know it's a, a deeply held secret, but I'm behind on my reading. Uh, he said facetiously, everybody knows I'm way behind. I'm, I'm massively behind. I was behind on this title, too. So I read the previous four issues of this the other day. Yeah. They were two two-parters that were, frankly, they were okay, but not great. And it gave me a very interesting context for reviewing this issue. Because, I mean, I've always usually read the past issues of what we review, but rarely in such rapid succession so recently before reading the current one. What I'm noticing is this story was kind of sort of more of the same. Multi-part story, often only two or three issues long. The first part typically introduces the threat ending on a reveal or some unanswered question to, to kind of get you to that next part. Usually, only part of the team is featured, and the rest of the team has some other adventure, either as a subplot of the current story or will, that will be the next story. In this case, Vixen and Ray are the ones kind of left behind for this other adventure, presumably that'll happen after this, or as a subplot of, of this storyline. There's usually a page or two devoted to a character arc. Often lately it's been, you know, Ryan and Frost's relationship. This issue was uh, Ray and, and Zenos's relationship of wherever that's going. And there's usually some sort of a montage showing the characters, or the various team members, in some sort of action in smaller groups or separately or whatever, indicating there's more going on than just the mission we're seeing. That sounds like a winning formula for a superhero comic book. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like that would be a good formula just to go back to the well and tell some stories. Well, it's funny because particularly with those montages and all the stuff and the implication other stuff's going on, somehow they never manage to touch on what Black Canary is doing over in, I don't know, Birds of Prey or Green Arrow or what Batman's doing in his various other titles. And of course, most of the other characters don't show up anywhere else, so it just at least establishes them as doing something. And it's funny because I like the title. I liked this issue, but I, I, I feel there's something missing in this title for me, but I really at this point can't articulate what that is. In this particular issue, I was a little frustrated by kind of the hint and the tease of, of what's going on with Ray Palmer, but not really getting anything definitive here. Uh, presumably we'll get that next issue, but I don't know. I just, I feel like I want to like this title more than I actually am liking it, and I'm not disliking it, but the characters are 
for the most part, B or C level characters, what they're doing doesn't always seem to have a whole lot of major ramifications or importance or, you know, gosh, wow or something, but it's, it's entertaining. It's, it's interesting. And there's a definite sense of growing progression in history and, and, uh, whatnot in this title. And man, in this issue, uh, the art by Ivan Rice, I mean, it's terrific, but I've been a fan of his for, for ages. So I think this is a title that if you're okay with the Justice League of, I don't say amateurs, that's, that's unfair, but of, of the lesser known characters, uh, you may want to think about this. But for an issue that was going to unravel the mystery of, of the Adams, uh, the Ray Palmer Adams disappearance from, from DC Universe Rebirth number one, I feel it didn't really move the story forward too much. How okay. did this work for you? Well, for coming in cold, it worked pretty well. It was a really fun microverse story. Um, the Ivan Rice, Rice art really pops, man. When, it, when they're in the, in the microverse, it's, uh, it's some really cool, uh, spectacular drawing and, and really some nice looking art in there. And, uh, of course, that's probably no surprise to anybody who reads his stuff. He's a talented artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was engaged in the adventure they were on and thought the final reveal was pretty good and not really any surprises or anything out of the ordinary, but a nice formulaic superhero story. And uh, uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. Nice formulaic superhero story is a, a good way to put it because it is a nice story. It's got some decent character moments. It's got much of what you would expect. And yeah. I think Steve Orlando, the writer, is is doing – a solid good job i just wish i could figure out what do i feel is kind of missing that while this has a lot of how i would describe say the early 80s satellite era justice league shorter stories they go on adventures in smaller teams there's stuff building up to the next storyline yada yada there was something about that that really sparked my imagination and got me hooked whereas here i'm liking it but and and that's i'm trying to figure out what's What's missing for me that uh, that if they would just add, this would go you know up a, a, a notch or two for me? Well, for some of these characters, I'll take Batman. When we read him in other books where he's the star, he's a very deep character, a lot of nuance. Um, he's got this rich history, and and you kind of know the way the way he reacts to situations, either feels correct or not, and you can really sink your teeth into that character and, and what he's going through. Um, you know, in, in something like this, everybody kind of shares a little bit of space. Um, you know, there's uh, in it, it, you don't really get into uh, Batman's Batman's Batman because I, you recognize the costume, but nothing through his character in this story really screams. Oh yeah, that's definitely how Batman would handle this. Or the, yeah, that's really spot on something, you know, there were a couple places where I was like, eh, I don't know if that's really how he would handle this, but I'm going with it because it's a it's a group comic and, you know, he, he's not the star of it. So I kind of let that let that go. And some of the characters I don't know as well. I'm just assuming that's how they always act. And uh, so I, I don't know if there's an authenticness to the characterizations or it's these characters that look like characters that you like are doing something new and isn't that cool then. So it's a little more of a surface story, I guess, and not as deep as some of the more complex storylines have been. And, and for me, it's, 
it's okay when that happens. And, you know, if it's, if it's an enjoyable ride, it's all right. I mean, if it's boring, that's one thing, but I didn't think this was boring. I, I thought this was a, a fun trip into the, into the multi, uh, to the microverse. How many times have you done the trip into the microverse sort of a storyline? Not as many as you, a few, um, but not enough to where it's super cliched for me. And I, and I just roll my eyes. I'm not to that point yet. I hope I'm not to that point, but I'm probably further down that path than you are. I guess from what you were talking about there, the surface levelness that, that has a, a, a ring of truth. I'm not saying this is a shallow story, but it's certainly shallower than some of the ones we're getting in some other titles. And the title that popped to mind as a good comparison point for this is Detective Comics. It's another team book right now that Batman is part of. But that Batman feels more iconic Batman than this one. And I, I think here there's a little bit more, I don't want to say of spinning plates or whatever, but keeping the characters busy, keeping them in action and doing different things or whatnot. But it, it feels like we're breezing past certain things and that with other writers, this easily could have been a six-issue arc. I'm glad it's not. I expect it to be done either in the next issue or the one after. And I think that faster pace is helping. But like the previous two storylines to this don't seem to have any lasting ramifications for the most part. And therefore seem a little bit more disposable than I would like. But it's a reasonably well-told story. It's fantastic art. Uh, the characters are basically in character. There doesn't seem to be anything that just flies in the face of it. Um, How does this compare to the Justice League book uh, for you? It's inferior to the Justice League book, but the Justice League has Green Lanterns, Flash, Superman, Wonder Woman, the iconic characters. So these characters don't have the history and the baggage with me. And does this book need to exist with a Justice League that is that is superior um, so that there is already a, a good <laughs> team book? Does this book need to exist? The Superior Justice League. That would be a Marvel title. <laughs> <laughs> All new, all different. All new, all different. Um, I don't think this. there's a mandate for this to exist. I don't think there's a mandate for it not to exist. I think that it existing in seeming isolation to the other Justice League book um, does not do this one any favors. And if I were to run a second Justice League team, I would have had, I don't say heavier hitter characters or whatever, or more popular characters or whatever. This is not the group I would have gone with. I'd have to give some thought as to who I would go with, but I would almost try to assemble those perennial, um, and it would be risky, but I'm going to say second tier characters, the Hawkman, Hawkwoman, Green Arrow, Firestorm, um, that sort of collection, the non-core seven Justice Leaguers, and maybe have a bigger team that you rotate through and have this be kind of Batman's outreach team or something like that. You know, have the Martian of- Manhunter in it, have some of those other characters. A bunch of outsiders, perhaps? Uh, not outsiders, <laughs> but I guess I would I would almost go Challenge of the Super Friends is kind of the 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 thought that's coming to mind. Mm. I.e., they've got a big team there, but you don't always see all of them every time. And I think it'd be fun to bring in, you know, again the Hawkman, Hawkgirl, uh, Green Arrow, Black Canary, Martian Manhunter, Firestorm, the uh, the Satellite, and other era. Justice Leaguers that are, are B-list solidly or C-list somewhere, but not A-list. Yeah. Toss in a few others. I mean, frankly, I, I think it'd be fun if they brought in, um, as some of the more regular characters, some of the, uh, the, we'll call them the diversity heroes from the, uh, Super yeah. Friends. 
and have something to where you've got a lot going on, and I would almost be tempted to do it as a either a bi-weekly book or something to where you've got a little bit more room to play with, and it's not a very clear, here's part one of this story, part two of this story, but there's a lot going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've suggested that sort of a thing many times in the past, and at times they've done it with things like, um, oh, what was the uh, the weekly series after 52? Uh, there was the Justice Countdown? League. Countdown? Not Countdown. There was um, Brightest Day and uh, a Justice League one that was kind of every other week sort of a deal. So they've done some of the things I'm suggesting about getting some of these these characters that could almost but not quite sustain their own title and give them a little bit more spotlight. But, you know, a reboot of the uh, the Ryan Choi Adam isn't working too great for me here. Uh, Black Canary is getting plenty of use over in Birds of Prey and, and Green Arrow. So having her be, you know, a bi-coastal uh, hero um, doesn't seem to be making a whole lot of sense. So it's kind of... Again, unraveling a little bit of the overall continuity. Um, Frost, as a member of the Justice League, is interesting, but she's surrounded by characters that I feel she should be able to take out fairly easily. And when you've got one reformed villain with her, and then you've got Lobo, who's also a little bit of a wild card that could turn on the team conceivably, it just seems ill-advised to have... You know, Vixen and and Black Canary as as your experienced members of the team, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It just tactically it's unsound and questionable. Um, whereas it would make more sense to have those characters of Lobo and whatnot in there if you had a Martian Manhunter, a Firestorm, uh, some of these other heavier hitter, uh, Red Tornado. Bring him back. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, so I like this. I just didn't love it, and it's one of those that I'm. It's it's feeling a little more formulaic than I would like it to. Uh, because I read them in such rapid succession. Um, but it's, it's not a bad book. Uh, I just think it could and frankly should be a little better. I'm going to go with a B minus on this. It's certainly not something I think you need to stay away from, but it's also not one that I feel is necessarily essential reading. Yeah. After I, after I finished this book, I thought, you know, that's, this was pretty good. And, um, it's not enough. It's not great enough to crack my pull list. Um, but it's, mine's pretty crowded and it would have taken, it would have taken uh, the Aquaman that we reviewed a, a few weeks ago to kind of to kind of make that that jump uh, onto the pull list. So um, that's that's not really its fault because it's tough to to crack the pull list. So after I finished it, I thought, you know, this could this could be for a few people. This might be good for uh, the comic reader that's not reading any team books and you want to sample one. This issue would be a good one to sample. Uh, this could this would kind of uh, wet your whistle. It's very accessible. Um, it gets you some an interesting adventure because it's, it's in it's in the microverse, or maybe that the person that's already reading a Justice League title and wants to to see how the other team's doing, they might want to sample it. But the more I listen to you, um, those were my initial thoughts. It sounds like maybe there's better stuff going on over in Detective for team for a team book, and and if folks are looking to sample something. Maybe that's the direction to go. But but my initial thought after reading this was that this would be a nice book to sample uh, to see if uh, this team book is for you. Certainly, if you're looking for another Justice League book, uh, this is not a bad one to go with. If you're looking for another Batman team book or a Batman team book, uh, I would recommend Detective over this. Yeah, I was just thinking team book in, in general. Um, uh, and obviously, you're saying Justice League's better, Detective's better. And um, this, while not a bad book, 
um, for me is also a B minus, and uh, it, it's 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 worth a sample if you've got the room. Um, but it sounds to me like uh, there are also some other options for you on, on the DC side that you can check out too, if that's your itch that you're trying to scratch. One of the things that you think this has running in its favor is short stories and accessibility to where I think you can jump on on pretty much almost like every other issue or something. Which we like. I think that's great. Yep. Shall we move on to our Marvel book? Yeah. This is Inhumans, Once in Future Kings, number one, where the true history of the royal family is revealed. Writers Christopher Priests, and we've got Phil Noto on the art. There's a lead story. There's a backup story. Getting the backup story out of the way real quick. It was a quick... It was a cute but completely pointless story with Thing and Lockjaw. It was it was like a, a essentially a gag strip that lasted I don't know two pages, three pages. Cute, humorous, but uh, I don't think the issue would have lost much of anything without it. Two page backup stories would have lost. The lead story, on the other hand, uh, first off, art by Phil Noto, and uh, I think the Phil Noto is incredibly talented, and he's doing a terrific job here. So I really enjoyed the art. I thought that was just uh, a lot of fun. But there was an aspect of this that just kept nagging at me uh, in a couple of ways. One of which was kind of a, when is this set? It's featuring a young Black Bolt, Medusa, and Maximus, as well as some other characters. Yet it feels like it's fairly con- in fairly contemporary times, based on like the new uh, Times Square page and one or two other things. So, if this is, I mean, I don't know how old you'd put Black Bolt or whatever. I'd put him at least 40-ish or something. And here he's, I don't know, 16-ish. So, we're talking at least 20 years back, maybe 25. And, it and, you th- and you're saying you're looking at that Times Square shot, and that's a contemporary shot of New York? That and one or two other things felt like it was present day. Hmm. Yeah, I thought I felt it felt more dated to me. Oh, okay. Maybe, uh, maybe I just took it differently than you did. It was a, a one pa- a full page panel thing, so there's not a whole lot to go on there. Um, but I think if, and maybe I'm, you know, misdating as to when certain things were happening, at, you know, when they'd refab Times Square and, and some of that stuff. I couldn't tell quite where some of the stuff in the Inhuman City was taking place, but I would also admit to not having the clearest timeline in my head as to when were the Inhumans in the Himalayas? When were they on the blue area of the moon? Does any of that matter anymore? And this whole bit with this king they're dealing with, who later becomes uh, the uh, the Unspoken or whatever, which is from a, a story a few years back in, I think it was Mighty Avengers. I, actually, one of the things I want to call out that they did a really cool job with is on the letters page, they uh, mentioned some additional reading where you can find out more about some of these things. And they do mention the Unspoken Trade paperback, which is part of the Mighty Avengers. So uh, read more about it aspect, thumbs up to that. But if the Unspoken was the king right before, presumably, Black Bolt and stuff, that just seems really recent. More so than I kind of got the feeling of from the Unspoken storyline, at least as I recall reading it, granted that was five, maybe ten years ago that I read it, so maybe I'm just misremembering. But this whole, let's wipe him from the history books, nobody will speak his name, kind of makes... It's like when in um, Star Wars they mention the ancient Jedi religion as if it's this archaic old thing. And then we find out that uh, Jedi were still really big when Darth Vader was a boy. You know, it's like the phrasing just feels a little off there. And 
we keep getting this one guy in the baseball cap or whatever. And I feel like I should recognize him from either, uh, from one of the Inhumans titles, uh, of recent years. I just, I couldn't place him. And that kind of annoyed me a little. Um, cause the, the way they're using him implies he should be familiar to me. And frankly, and this is just a, a writing gimmick crutch, call it what you will, of, of Christopher Priest's, where every scene has a title and a location. And I'm uh, sorry, I'm over it. It feels gimmicky. It's getting in the way of the story. It worked fine on like Quantum and Woody and maybe one or two other places. He's doing it on like everything he writes and it doesn't fit every story. So that rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. But I mean, overall, while I was a little confused when it takes place, are they just retelling or are they reworking the Inhuman backstory? And I've got a uh, suspicion they're reworking it, Uh, which, you know, is fine if they tell a good story. And so far, they've been telling a good story. There was some depth to it. There was some good interpersonal uh, uh, interactions here. We get to see some of the the character spark uh, of personality with Medusa, with Black Bolt, with Maximus, uh, with the the king and and his um, right-hand man and stuff, uh, Cadillac or whatever. Cadillac is what I will refer to him as, just to mock him a little, I'm kidding. So it had some really good stuff, but there were a few things where I think they could have set the the time and the location on this a little bit better, um, but maybe that was just me, you know, having certain expectations uh, that this just didn't quite match to in terms of where are they going, what are they doing with the Inhumans. Yeah, I, for a while now, Marvel's said, you will like the Inhumans. You are going to love the this team. This is going to be the, your new X-Men for the next generation. And, and I've been very resistant. And the first wave of Inhumans titles that they kind of rolled out again, maybe in the all-new, all-different, maybe in the Marvel Now, I can't remember now, when, the, they, when they, they tried this, that stuff was direct and horrible, and I didn't like any of it. And so I've been anti-Inhumans for a while, and then lately... I've really warmed up to some of the titles. I'm enjoying Black Bolt now. I'm enjoying Secret Warriors. There's a couple other titles that are pretty good and solid books. And then this is going to be – this was pitched as a as a prequel, you know, and uh, I, I was like, all right, this sounds good. And I found it super accessible, um, really great introduction to, to these characters, um, made them incredibly likable. Uh, the – the Phil Noto art is amazing and beautiful to look at. Uh, I, I, I really, really dug Medusa's character. I really, really dug Black Bolt. Um, and I, I thought that it was just a really great story of how they got where they, where they are today. And I love this world. I thought it was, was really awesome. I was kind of disappointed in that. We we're not going to spend more time here. We're going to go ahead and jump into new york but i just thought this was a really fun uh zero issue i guess for the inhumans and just uh, a a really good intro uh for folks that uh, maybe didn't uh, maybe haven't read a lot of inhumans um not familiar with the kirby line or whatever from back in fantastic four days and um this this is kind of an Inhumans for a new generation, and I really thought it was uh, handled really well. I, I would agree with that, and I think the way you describe it, uh, and I, it, it's a great jumping on point for the Inhumans. 
because while Marvel has been pushing the Inhumans very uh, strongly the last few years, this is one of the, the times I think they did a solid job kind of introducing them and yeah. showing their characters, not just telling us their characters. Yeah, I, I think that that initial wave was like, yeah, the humans are great, and you should you should already love them, and you should already know how great they are, and 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 let's just throw you in an adventure. We haven't really built up anything for me, and here they're building these characters up to where, okay, now I root for them. I'm rooting for them because now I know a little more, and you've you've shown me a little more of of who they they are, and I I don't think we got that in anything in those early waves at all. Well, and I think they were smart to limit the focus in this issue to predominantly Black Bolt, Maximus, uh, the the former king, and Medusa and stuff. I mean, we see Crystal, but I'm not sure that she says much of anything. Um, so I expect the, the focus to expand a little bit as this goes on, but still stay focused on the brothers. Uh, there was an aspect where it almost felt like a CW take on the Inhumans. And, <laughs> I can see that a little bit, yeah. And not in a bad way, either. I mean, there were some things that, that you know, storytelling-wise, with the, the captions at the beginning of every title kind of annoyed me or whatever, but this would be, if I had, if somebody came to me and said, gosh, I really want to start with the Inhumans, where's some, some good places? This is certainly on the list. I would say, obviously, the Kirby stuff back in the day on Fantastic Four, uh, Start with the start with the beginning. I mean, gosh, that's that's not bad. There was also a twelve issue in human series where some of them were uh, came down to earth as students at a university or whatever. That was really good. Um, I think it was a Marvel Knights title, but I could be wrong on that. But certainly, a lot of what they've done with um, the Uncanny Inhumans and then the Inhumans and the other various Inhuman titles of the last couple of years would not be on the list. So. I think you're very correct in pointing out that this is one of the stronger um, titles they've done with these characters. And I think focusing on some of the classic characters and giving them um, kind of room to, to show their personality and their character without it feeling overblown, pompous, or, or anything of the sort. I mean, when when Black Bolt is, is calling out uh, his king on, is that really an ethical thing to go do, the way these guys are being treated? That played out nicely the the interplay between the characters the the ramifications of it and there's a these characters are are not caricatures they're characters that that have thought have subtleties that have motives that have feelings that get hurt that in, impact how they act um and i like that so there is a, a a depth to the writing here that we don't see in every title and it goes back to what we were just talking about with the Justice League, which was a little bit more surface level. This one, particularly with how the King reacts and some of that stuff, and how Medusa reacts in some places, again, Black Bolt and Maximus or whatever, we get to see a little bit more under the surface of the character. We get to see that depth, and I do like that. Yeah, there, there's a strength in Medusa as a young girl who is trying to be courted by multiple suitors and is fending these folks off. And she just she has this strength and this defiance that um, was earned early on in this book and early on in her characterization. And and so when I when I think back of some of the other ways that I've seen her interact, I'm like, OK, I kind of get it now. Mm -hmm. I kind of you know, I kind of get it because I, I didn't really get to grow up, grow up with her. I didn't really get to see her matura maturation. And for me, this is really the kind of the closest I've 
read to an origin on these guys. And so uh, I, I really enjoyed it, loved everything about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm drinking the Marvel Kool-Aid with this, these Inhumans. They're starting to win me over. And um, this is something that's going to go on the pull list. And it's crowded, but it's I'm going to make room for this because uh, of just how good it was and how I, I want to see what's next for these characters. And I definitely see the CW comparison after you pointed it out a little bit. They're, they're really good-looking people. Well, <laughs> it's, good, it's good the looking young people as teens yeah. with romance, with drama, with angst. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it works though. And I hope, yeah, I hope these are the characters that they bring into the that ABC show. That'd be that'd be fantastic. Oh, absolutely! That show is focusing on the royal family with Black Bolt, Medusa, uh, I believe Maximus. I'm no, though I'm not certain about that. Certainly Lockjaw, uh, and I believe Crystal and stuff. So I think this is something that by the time that show comes out, they will be getting ready to have in trade if they don't already. Um, and it should make a good companion for the show, hopefully. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. That's cool. Um, so that, that, that's all good things. And, um, yeah, I, I heartily recommend this and, uh, wholeheartedly recommend this. And I gave it an A. Cool. Uh, for me, while I've got some, some confusion as to aspects of, you know, when it's set, whatever, ultimately that doesn't matter. Um, I do respect the, the depth of character and, of course, the Phil Noto art. Uh, I'm going to go with a B on this. Um, it is something that I do recommend. Even if you don't think you're an Inhumans fan, I think this is the kind of issue that has the chance to win somebody over, whereas so much of what they've done with the Inhumans over the last few years was not that quality of material. So if if, if you've ever wanted to see if the Inhumans could win you over, if, if there was a really good story, check this out. See what you think. So our next title is uh, from Action Labs uh, Entertainment. It is Toyetica number one. Um, this is a story and art by uh, Marty Legro. Um, so singular creator here. Uh, so it's his vision. Her. Um, oh, hers. Is it a her? Okay, my bad. I think pretty sure it's a her. I think that's uh, like her um, nickname. Oh. I think. If I so, think. my apologies. I wouldn't bet my life on it, but I think so. I have no idea. I just saw Marty and assumed guy, but it is Marty's vision, him, her, whoever. Um, <laughs> yep. Why don't you go first on this one? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, this is there's there's a world here where uh, there are human sized people and tiny sized people, and for a while the human sized folks uh, mistreated the little tiny people. Um, and then felt bad about it over time. And, and, and now, uh, these little people, uh, they have, uh, some land of their own and they have jobs where they pose as action figures and dolls and they help, uh, become stars in their own right by being, uh, the playthings of the humans children. Um, there seems to be still some tension between humans and small people but it's it's kind of uh, just kind of it, it's not as severe as it was in the um earlier history of this world and so this is a collection of characters a large collection of characters and um each character is very um uh, like they there's like a raggedy ann version of someone and someone's a mermaid and and they're they're kind of caricatures of 
the types of toys that one would play with as a young child. And these characters are interacting in a school where they are being trained to become the best of themselves of whatever uh, genre they represent so that they can pitch themselves as a toy to the human toy company who will then model a toy after them and they will become rich and famous and superstars in their world. And um, we meet some of them. Uh, there's a, a classroom of where, where the new girl comes in and we have uh, uh, one of the, the existing girls, kind of popular girls who reaches out to her and kind of lays, gives you the, gives her the lay of the land on who everyone is and what the pecking order is as far as popularity and, and what their uniqueness is, what their unique selling point is for uh, to be a doll or an action figure. And we kind of just meet everybody and see who we like and who we don't like and who we're supposed to root for and, and who might be the bad, bad boy or bad girl. And it's all ages and maybe skews a little younger than that. Um, not for everyone, but, uh, I think there's a, definitely an audience for this that could, could, uh, find some fun in this. I think that's a, a good summation of the premise. Um, Allow me to summarize what happens in this particular issue. <laughs> we have six pages of exposition giving us the backstory, a lot of which you kind of did a quick run through of. We have this lead character of Trixie uh, waking up in class. We've got a new student coming in. Uh, Trixie then, with uh, some surprising speed, uh, writes a little uh, one-page note that she slaps on the other character's desk somehow to the teacher's uh, you know, obliviousness. And that uh, note then proceeds to narrate the next, so, geez, I don't know, rest of the issue, um, running through exposition on every other class member uh, until we get towards the end where um, uh, Trixie has to, what does she have to do? She's got to go up to the board for some reason, trips on the mermaid's uh, skateboard or whatever, sending it out the window, and that's pretty much all that happens in this issue. Um I didn't care for the note as the narration. I certainly didn't care for the exposition uh, as it became pretty much the almost entirety of the uh, the issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were being told who the students were. Most of them don't even say anything. And I get that there we're going to need a little bit of exposition to set the scene of what is Dollington Academy, what's going on with this world, who are the Biddle. And the, the introduction of that term was, I thought, really kind of clumsily done. It was it was way towards the end, and it was thrown out like we should know that term. Well, is it at the end, it was on page five or whatever of the exposition at the beginning. Oh, was it? I missed uh, every it detail copied from a real biddle. And I'm like, biddle? What, what's a biddle? Oh, I guess it's one of these. So from the context, I got it. Okay. Okay. I just cut it the second time, and I thought, hmm. Probably should have introduced that sooner, but I guess they did. Yeah, I thought it could have been a little smoother in terms of how they did that. But essentially, everything in this issue happens in, I don't know, five, ten minutes of time in a classroom with the exposition filling out the premise, the characters, and, like, everything. And the premise isn't bad, but I didn't feel that the, the execution did it the least bit of justice because we never really get to ex – we never leave the classroom other than an exposition – we never get a sense of what the world is really like other than in the exposition. And 
this sort of welcome to the Academy, hope you survive the experience sort of a thing has been done to death over in the X-Men alone, much less plenty of other places. So there's other examples of how to do this sort of introductory issue smoother, better, and, and just more interestingly. And ultimately, I didn't feel there was really a story in this issue. It was, let me give you the lowdown on all of these characters. It was almost like an in-universe comic book format pitch for a series. And as a result, it just it completely didn't hook me. And I'm not suggesting I am part of the target audience that would just naturally gravitate to this or whatever. But it just fell so far off the mark, storytelling-wise, and I use that term loosely, that I was actively disengaged before the end of the issue. In a world where there are bronies, you definitely could be this target audience, but I don't think you are. Um, it, I, I didn't mind the exposition at all, um, and I thought the note served to to build the world as quickly as possible because there's a lot of ground to cover in a short amount of time. And I think I think I think this it worked in order to say, okay, here here here's where you are. You're, you're in this world. Here's how we got here. And here are who some of the major players are. And the note served, um, served that purpose and covered the ground because it's a large cast of characters. Let me suggest um, an alternative. You start in the classroom. The teacher is going over the history, because uh, it's the first day of school or whatever, maybe, of what it means to be a biddle, the, the academy, the, the dolls are based on the toys. Here's how it all came to be. Oh, you're going to pitch yourself, so you got to learn some stuff. Okay. Suddenly, magically, it's it's time has elapsed. It's it's lunchtime. So now Trixie has to take this new student and introduce her around the lunchroom. So you could actually go through and and she could be introducing these people. Who knows? They could even say something in the course of the issue and the introduction to them to give us a sense of of what they're like. And they could give their little elevator pitches to what sort of toy they are. And oh yeah, well I got to work on this. I haven't figured that out. Whatever. You know, which ones are able to sell themselves, which ones aren't, and it be interactive. So you get the exposition there, but not just in the form of captions. I mean, this was predominantly an illustrated story, not a comic book. Hmm. Yeah, would, that, I, would that have worked better for you or no? I didn't have a problem with the note. I really didn't. So okay. so the, the note as a device uh, worked for me. Um, sometimes exposition isn't bad, and... And I think sometimes it worked. And in this case, I, I, I felt it worked a little better. Um, now, I think we're splitting hairs over what this is as a whole. It's not something that's for me. Um, and there is there is an, uh, an aspect of this that I get is a pitch for a television animated series and line of toys uh, that that that's more what this could be and, and, and maybe it hopes to be than to be uh, there there are, that there are really comic stories to be told here. I'm not, I didn't, I got the sense that it was more of a, of a pitch as well. I hope um, not because it's a fundamentally flawed pitch. If that's the case, because you couldn't it, do this as a cartoon and tell, sell toys with it as part of the cartoon, the very nature of this, where they're trying to sell themselves as toys almost precludes it from being a cartoon. Now, standards and practices, I don't if those even still exist, and I thought they did, but maybe they don't. You can't have a series that's, that's pitching itself as toys. That's why you would never see G.I. Joe action figure commercials during G.I. Joe. I could see a whole line of a target of the Dullington Academy 
kids and you know uh each one of them is their own blister pack and i could i could definitely see that that's what that there's definitely an aspect to that here i i get that i get that i just don't see the ability to promote that in the cartoon but the I question the mechanics of how that would play out, but yes. What's the, I mean? I don't, I don't, what, are, what are you talking about? Because there are turtles cartoons and there are turtles toys. But the turtles cartoon does not act as an advertisement of "Hey, we've got toys, go buy them." The very premise here is these people are selling themselves as toys. This is the model for toys. So I think it blurs the line because uh, it was it was there were rules about this. A few decades back, I forget the exact uh, story about them, but it basically got to the point where cartoons were happening. Uh, there were commercials during the cartoons for the toys, and it was it was seen as is a uh, basically a bad marketing practice towards kids who it's like, uh, Mom, Dad, you got to go buy me this stuff, sort of a thing. Yeah, I get that, and I, I get that, but I don't know if that that's what this is. That's what that would be if j- just because the premise is that they are toys. Um, I, I, I think if I had time, I could find plenty of examples of animated shows where they were toys or toy like, and then there was an accompanying things that could be purchased. Obviously, a lot of these shows have things that could be purchased. No argument about that. And there are various ones that are toy like, although I'm grasping for straws is to, to name any of those at the moment. The, the Biddles going to school to hone their, their toy theme and, and choose how to sell themselves, though, puts it in a murky area. I'm not saying it couldn't be done. Certainly, I don't know that the standards and practices apply on, like, Netflix or on all places they could shop this as a show. It just, um... Yeah, you don't have to worry about Saturday morning cartoons anymore. Exactly. Back in those days, I don't think this would have flown as such. But those days are over, so it doesn't matter. I And I, I see the Darlington Academy toy line premise and possibility, and it's not a bad one. But I, uh, I don't know. This comic didn't work for me. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's not something that I would normally read. Um, uh, but, but I thought as a first issue in an all ages title that skews a little young, that it, it would be fun for a certain age group. And I, I think that, um, what age group yeah, do you think that is? I think it's your 10 to 14 year old girl. All right, I just it it feels like there's an awful lot of reading to be done in this because of the amount of exposition. But a ten to fourteen year old girl, it's I don't think it's unreasonable for that. So that's fair. But um, all in all, I liked it a little better than you did as a first issue. I'm going to give it a B minus. And um, yeah, if I, I don't know who I could hand this to, none of my peers I think would really gravitate towards it. Um, but I think the the Art is nice. Uh, she does a good job of, of handling both the art and the and the um, the writing chores here, and handling double duty. And I think that it's it, it should be able to find an audience, and I hope it does. Um, but I'm probably not it. I think the art certainly fits the material um, in terms of the style and, and whatnot. Uh, neither the art nor the story clicked with me. Um, but further, I felt it was also. Uh, in my opinion, not a well-told story. So it's not just that I wasn't in for the premise, but I really couldn't respect the storytelling. Um, but certainly, I do think there is probably an audience out there for this. I just would be hard-pressed to describe it or, or name anybody I know that I think this would appeal to. Um, but 
I'm sure there's somebody out there that, that this would. If any of our listeners uh, have picked this up and, and read this, um, I'd certainly love to know what they think of it. Uh, if they liked it, if they didn't, if they thought it was well done but not for them, or it was for no. them but not well done, whatever. Um, just, again, we'd love other opinions on that. Yeah, if you're reading um, Ms. Marvel and maybe The Deep and uh, maybe Hellcat, uh, some of those books, uh, this might be fun for you. You might enjoy this. Hellcat seems like actually probably the closest uh, story in art style, probably. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I'm going to go with a D on this. Um, for me, it just what felt like a complete lack of story in this issue frustrated me. And I think there are better ways they could have pitched the concept and introduced the characters with at least something that felt like there was a story there, even if there necessarily wasn't. Um, so I'm, I'm not coming back for this, but, uh, again, I don't feel I was part of their target audience, so I don't think they're missing much by me not coming back. Yeah, but, uh, it, it's a small audience. It's a small niche. So I, I hope they find it. Hope so, too. It's definitely a niche project, but I think there's a lot of merit in niche projects. It's just, can they find their audience, and can their audience find it in the uh, the time frame the market might allow? Yeah, definitely. So, as I mentioned, I am uh, behind on my reading. Um, I have, uh, I posted today a, a new uh, chart on the forum as we record this. It is uh, August 15th as we record. And I've made, I feel, a significant amount of progress catching up. All right. Um, I've read over the past couple of days somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 comics, uh, including the three we just reviewed. I started out just, it's like I wanted to catch up on the DC stuff because of what's going on with the the casting and metal and all that stuff. So it's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll focus on the DC Universe titles. Note. DC Universe, not DC Published. So it's like I got to pare the stuff down to manageable-ish chunks. And then I started just going, okay, how far back am I? Let's just go week by week. But then I quickly realized that I was better off continuing to go week by week. But as I hit every title, catch up on the title. Because right now, most of the DC titles are pretty siloed off from one another. Now, what's going on in Superman doesn't really impact what's going on in Action Comics or Super Sons or Justice League or, you know, uh, any other title for that matter. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I found I was able to get more read if I wasn't constantly switching gears and storylines, but if I could just follow one title through, you know, four or five issues or whatever. Uh, and once I did that, I was able to, to get through quite a few, quite a few comics in, in short order and stuff. I do feel DC has changed up their storytelling style with Rebirth. Shorter stories and um, a little bit more focus on accessibility. Um, I think some titles are head and shoulders above the rest. Detective Comics being a good example. I've got, I don't know, maybe another dozen or so, and I think I'm current on the DC Universe titles. Uh, at which point I may try to tackle um, the Marvel Universe stuff. But since the Marvel Universe is in the middle of um, Secret Empire for what I'm reading, because, again, I'm going back quite a few weeks, uh, that's not going to be one where I can just, oh, well, here's a title, I'll, I'll read through it, because it's got more week-to-week -week continuity for the universe. Um, and, frankly, there's just a ton of Marvel books out there. So that, that, that may take me a little bit to get through. Yeah, I'm caught up everything but um, Marvel this week. I still have a few left in Marvel. Uh, some real standouts, new and notable in the DC line for me. With the, of course, Mr. Miracle. Um, 
That's I, one of the ones on my uh, have not read yet. I uh, think um, I think Tom King's just he's got a, he's had a really good one two punch recently with uh, uh, some of the stuff he's doing in Batman, but then that Elmer Fudd special was kind of just a, a surprise, and this Mister Miracle uh, taking another character that I know very little about and really really delivering a powerful story so far. I'm really excited about that one. Um, in over an image, uh, killer be killed is came back with a, with an issue that was really good. with It's 11th issue. Um, and low Rick remembers low and he's now kind of rebranded to a giant generator imprint. Like it's his version of skybound. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen recently with skybound and, um, Mark Millar's imprint, the Miller world, uh, that uh, these are getting sold and getting optioned, and and so I I would anticipate that uh, Rick Remender's giant generator imprint will will soon follow because he's prolific and got a lot of stuff going on. But uh, Low was a really great issue that as I finished it, I thought you know that's a really great way to end this this series. I really enjoyed the kind of ambiguity of how it left it, and it, it really left a kind of hopeful. And I turned the page and it said, oh, next month and <laughs> the next issue of low. I'm like, oh, OK, so it's not the end. Uh, so there, there's more to come. Um, but but it was it was still a really good issue. Manifest Destiny came back with its 30th issue. It's just kind of a landmark number in uh, indie comics or in the back half comics now because you, you don't well, that really all comics. It's tough to get to 30 nowadays. So hats off to them. And it's just as strong as ever. Uh some of the splash pages alone should get um, Eisner Award nominations. It's just beautiful to behold. And we had the debut of uh, Jordi Belair's writing comic, uh, her first comic in Redlands, number one, which is a kind of a witch comic in the Deep South. I think it's Florida-based. Uh, real murky Vanessa Del Rey art style. And then Jordi's colors over top of that kind of made it a painty, painted a painted style um, and the story's finding its way, but it's, it's creepy and kind of cool. I kind of dug it. Um, so a lot of good stuff coming out this week and I am trying to stay current. Um, but uh, some weeks are better than others, but I'm get, I'm close. It's just the speed with which this stuff is coming out makes that definitely a challenge. And there's just not only so much coming out quickly, but just so much coming out in general that, yeah, it's uh it's hard to keep up and, and whatnot, but at least I'm starting to make a dent in it myself. Um, yeah, we'll see how much uh, I get done moving forward. I think the next week or so may be a little busy, but then after that, uh, hopefully I'll uh, have some time to just plow through some stuff. As I mentioned earlier, this marks uh, 10 years of weekly uh, Comic Spotlight episodes without missing a single week. That uh, has taken some doing. I want to thank you, Drew, for... Uh, all the help you've been doing lately on all of that, including, you know, helping pick the, the comics we review and actually, I don't know, reading them or reviewing. That's a big help, too. I enjoy that. Yeah, I've I've not spoken to anyone for 220, 30 some straight weeks or whatever it's been. Uh, but you, <laughs> you know, there have been weeks where I've taken off of just about everybody except maybe my wife. And so uh, <laughs> hats off. <laughs> Well, and also just watching the industry change over that time and whatnot, watching storytelling uh, in comics change over that time. It's just things are radically different than they were back around uh, Weekly Comic Spotlight number one 
which covered stuff released on August 15th, 2007. So years before the new 52 was thought about, this was long before day and date digital was as ubiquitous as it is now. It was in some ways a better time, in some ways not a better time. And we've got a lot of great things going on now. Um, but I also want to thank all the listeners for, for listening for the last 10 years, and hopefully they will continue to listen. That's, I mean, the whole reason I do this is to share the love of comics and stuff, and there's no point in me doing this or us talking about comics if nobody's going to bother to listen. So I appreciate the listeners and the feedback we get from them. Um, but like I said, we're going to be doing an episode. We're going to actually record that tomorrow night as we're sitting here recording. It'll go up... Uh, the Wednesday after this, I believe, maybe the Friday, depends how long it takes me to edit, where we get some people together and we, we talk about, uh, you know, what's what's different 10 years later or what have you. Yeah, yeah, it should be fun. And um, I, I, I think you're in rarefied air, man. I don't know of any other podcast that was able to pull off a string of um, 10 years straight. So um, congratulations and thank you. Happy to do it, and I feel like I'm in, in good company with a few other people like um, John Suntress, who's been doing Word Balloon for, I think, 12 years now. Um, but yeah, it's podcasting is very different now than it was then, um, both in terms of, of how accessible podcasts are, how easy they are to do now versus then, and stuff like that. It's just it's, uh, it's amazing. I Certainly when I started this, I didn't think I'd necessarily be doing it here 10 years later, but you know, hey, here I am. Speaking of upcoming stuff, uh, the preview spotlight deadline is going to be Saturday, September 9th. It's uh, bright and early the morning thereof of that Saturday. Tons of interesting things coming out in comics. I think uh, hopefully people can find some good stuff to talk about in previews. Um, some months for me, it's really easy. Some months, not so much because everything's in the middle of an arc, whatever. But again, there's been plenty of cool announcements. I think there's uh, a lot to talk about and hopefully people will uh, send in a lot of clips because they have been for the last few months. And again, I really appreciate it. Listener submissions are what make the preview spotlight both worth doing and I think uh, the success that they tend to be. And then on uh, Saturday, September 16th, will be the comic book page teleconference. That'll be at 7 p.m. Central Time. That We do that on Skype. You just, uh, if you've never been on before, there's instructions on the forum as to, to how to do it. You need Skype. You need to send me your contact information. And then that Saturday, uh, September 16th, uh, at or after 7 p.m. Central Time, just shoot me a text message on Skype saying, hey, I'd like to be on the call. And I'll add you in. We'll talk with whoever's already talking or we'll start the call or whatever. Freeform uh, discussion. All we ask is, uh, and this is pretty easy for, for our crowd because I think we've got a really good community here. Keep it polite. Keep it civil. We've never really had any problems with that. And just be respectful that not everybody's current on the reading, such as uh, myself. Um, so if you're going to spoil something, don't start with a spoiler. Just say, hey, have you read this? Do you mind? Sometimes I need to go take a bio break or something, and that gives people time to go discuss something I'm not current on. So you know, it all works out. Um, and of course, you know, we're going to have had one of those a uh, couple of nights from now between the time we record this and the time this goes up for uh, for August and probably talk about Comic-Con and some other stuff. So plenty of stuff going on. So anything else? Does that pretty much do it? That'll do it. 